Well, happy Advent season to you all. I'm super excited for this. Um, I want to say thank you to a few people. I mean, I, my wife will tell you this, I'm just atrocious at like decorating and building anticipation for the holidays. And so when I get to come into church and celebrate with my church family in a place that's decorated like this, I think that's pretty awesome. So I know Christina was a part of this. I think Kaylee Houghton was a part of this. I'm pretty sure. I know there's probably more people that I'm missing, but can we just give a short round of applause to the people who have helped us celebrate Advent in that way? I'm really thankful for that. I'm really thankful for you all, too, as our church family. I know many of you just spent a lot of time with your, your families over Thanksgiving. I hope that was wonderful, but I'm reminded, too, I was reminded, like, while I'm with my, my physical, biological family, that that's an analogy of my spiritual family, and I'm thankful for you all. I'm thankful to be able to celebrate with you all and enjoy our time together. I also want to thank Heath Whetstone. I don't know if he's here this morning, but you'll notice this awesome communion table that's in front of me. That's new. Uh, your kids saw it and probably thought, I cannot wait to run and jump off of that sucker after church service is over. <laughs> but we have a new communion table um, to help us celebrate the Lord's Feast together. So I'm really excited about that as well. All right, we're in Isaiah 61. So if you want to turn to Isaiah 61, you can. I get to kick off Advent this year. Normally I close it out on New Year's, but this year I get to kick it off. So I'm super excited. Uh, yeah, and we're in Isaiah 61, and the theme of Advent this year is the King is coming. And we'll, we'll talk through four different messages on the King is coming. I think the next one will be the King came. There will be others that are related to that. I don't know the, the titles of those yet. But uh, to start off, we're looking forward. We're seeing how prophecy about Jesus was fulfilled in his coming. So... I thought Isaiah 61 would be great because Jesus himself quotes this in Luke chapter 4 when it talks about, he says, oh, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. He's reading from Isaiah 61, uh, and that, that's uh, about him fulfilling his mission. So if there was any passage that was fitting to, that was predictive of Jesus' mission, it'd probably be the one that Jesus chose from the scroll of Isaiah. So I chose Isaiah 61 this morning. Prophecy is a wild thing, isn't it? that God tells us about what's going to happen, what's going to come to give us a hope for our future, but he doesn't tell us it exactly. He does tell us some things we can exactly be hoping for, right? Like if you think about our prophetic word that is waiting for us in the book of Revelation, we know that Jesus is coming back. We can know that. We can know that Jesus is going to make all things new, we know that Jesus is going to give new and eternal life to, uh, he's going to raise up all of those who are saved in Christ to life with him for eternity and raise up all those who are apart from him as his enemies in wrath and judge them to eternity in hell. We know those things are certain, but there's lots of other things about like when the date is or what that will look like exactly, how those events will play out, what things will precede it that we don't know. We can, we can, we can look into Scripture, and we can have our eyes and our thoughts, our minds open to, to what those would be, but we don't know for certain what those things will look like. Those things are still uncertain. And that's the same way this prophecy was 
for Israel back when Isaiah was given this word. They didn't know what it would look like. They had some things they could know for sure from Isaiah 61, but they didn't know. And how they interpret it, what their expectations of what this prophecy would play out and look like really significantly affected how, where their hope was, their expectations. There's a book that I love um, called What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. And he gives this awesome analogy in it where he says, okay, there's two people in traffic. There's one guy, I, may, I feel like I've maybe given this analogy before, but at, at risk of repeating myself, I'll give it again. But uh, there's two people in traffic, and one guy, he's late to work, and it's a traffic jam, and he is screaming at the cars in front of him. He's red in the face. You can see the veins bulging in his neck, and he's like stressed out majorly. He's got to get to work. And in the car right next to him, there is a young woman, and she's got her mirror down, and she's putting on makeup. And she's just as happy as can be because she's gotten this extra little chunk of time in traffic now to finish doing her face. They're under the same circumstances, but they had different expectations for what was going to happen in those circumstances. And they're drastically affecting how those people are reacting to that. If that guy would have just done his makeup in the car, he would have been fine. (laughs) Our expectations change how we view our circumstances and our expectations change how we view prophecy. And it's, today we're going to be looking back and seeing how, what they expected Jesus to be and how he was different than their expectations. But I hope that even in doing that, our expectations of who we expect Jesus to be and what we will expect him to do when he comes someday will be, will be challenged, will be built up, will be um, put in line with God's word. So... We're going to read from God's Word in Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. This is God's word. So, the first hearers, let's think about how the hearers of God's word would have originally received it, right? Um, We don't know exactly how Isaiah's original audience received this. Probably wasn't good. Um, Isaiah was, when when it talks about how the prophets were received in their time, it was not very kind. I mean, for example, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about the prophets um, by faith doing all of these things, and it ends the list with some of them being sawn in two. And that very likely could have been Isaiah. He could have been sawn in two at the end of his days. Um, so we don't, we don't know how they had originally received it. But in the, the years right after Isaiah's time as a prophet, uh, Judah, where he lived, would have entered into exile 
And they definitely would have been holding on to these words during, during that time, this prophecy of an anointed king coming to set them free. They would have had in their mind a picture of one who would come and rescue them from that exile. Then we've got the immediate audience of Jesus' time, right? We've got uh, those who are under Roman captivity. Because remember, Jesus quotes this, so he's saying that was when that prophecy was fulfilled. So he says that, he says that in that time, you know, that, that was when the prophecy was fulfilled. Um, they would have been thinking about the Roman captivity that was over them, probably. Because that, we all know that they were pretty, pretty annoyed and bothered, to say the least, by this Roman captivity. Um, you can see that even in the disciples' response to Jesus in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven, and they say, well, if you at this time fulfill the kingdom, restore the kingdom to Israel, they don't know he's about to ascend into heaven. They think he's about to free Israel and sit on a throne as a king. They were expecting somebody to be a Jewish king for Israel. So, and, and to free them, too, from all the oppressions of the Romans, too. We often talk about how much the Jews hated the tax collectors. There was this, like, enslavement of the Jewish people that they weren't able to get ahead because the tax collectors were ex exhorting, or extorting them so badly. So they would have probably had that in mind. And then immediately, in the synagogue where Jesus was sitting, that group probably would have even had different and distinct expectations for for what this prophecy meant. Because this was right after the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's right after it talks about him coming out of the wilderness, having been tempted by Satan. He, he starts his ministry. There's a small little sentence in between there saying that Jesus went into the to Galilee and the surrounding areas and started his ministry. And then it says that he went into the synagogue and gave his teaching. So they would have heard from around the area about some of the stuff that Jesus was doing. And if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus is healing a lot of people and he's casting out demons. So Jesus would have read that he's setting, he, he's proclaiming good news to the poor, he's binding up the brokenhearted, he's proclaiming liberty to the captives and opening the prison to those who are bound. He, they would have been thinking about all of these physical oppressions that they were under and that they were going to be set free from. Jesus even says, I know that's what you're thinking. He says, you're no doubt going to tell me, doctor, heal yourself, right after that. He tells them that's what they're thinking, because they know that that's what he's doing. They're thinking, well, maybe this is what it means. Maybe we're going to be free from all this stuff. Jesus obviously loves us. We're in his hometown where he's grown up with us, going to the synagogue, and he's going to free us from all of our sicknesses and our trouble right now. Those are the things they probably would have expected when they heard this passage read. My main point is this, that the reality is that none of those expectations were correct. That Jesus did, was not the one who freed the Israelites from, the Babylon, from Babylon, from Persia, from Greek, or from Rome. Jesus did heal many in his earthly ministry, but that was not the reason he came. And Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the poor. And the hindsight is 2020. We can look back at all of their expectations and we can say, why do they have such bad expectations for why Jesus came, right? When, when we read all that Jesus is capable of doing, 
and we read all of the promises that are promised for us in Isaiah 61, I wonder if we're honest sometimes if we have different expectations for what Jesus can do or what Jesus will do, what Jesus came to do. That he's going to free us from our spiritual oppression. He's going to free us from all of our spiritual affliction. And he came as a spiritual king to, to free us from our spiritual enemy uh, and our own sin. But we're still left with a lot of suffering. So how do we look at these prophecies saying that Jesus is going to free us from so many things and yet we look around at a world that's still so devastated in so many ways. How do we reconcile this? I want to look at a few ways. So first, I want to look at Christ coming as the anointed one. All right, that's what it says right in verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This anointing would have been a term specifically used for the king of Israel they would have known that this was talking about their coming king when they read Isaiah 61. That this anointed one, whoever is going to come, is going to be the king of Israel. We see that in in David's respect for Saul. Saul was the anointed one, so even while Saul is trying to assassinate David, Saul doesn't retaliate because Saul is the favored one. He has God's favor on him. He's the anointed one. We see that all throughout the Psalms about the language of the king of Israel, that there's this favor that God has in, with their king of this anointing. It's this protection, it's this success, this favor. So then put yourselves in the shoes of these Israelites. Again, they would have heard countless stories of David's kingship growing up in Israel. They would have read all about the, the wonderful things that the kingdom of Israel looked like back then. And then they would have contrasted those things with how their current circumstances looked, where there was not a king in Israel. They were being oppressed by either the Babylonians or by the Romans or whoever it might have been. They would have thought, wow, this coming king, just to have a physical king ruling over them would be such a drastic change, right? It would have freed them from so many of their issues and so many of their problems, and it would have been just so glorious to see. But that is not what was meant by Christ's anointing. It's this empowerment of the Holy Spirit to fight a spiritual battle and to to reign as the king over over all of the the spiritual realm to win the spiritual war of this earth. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson puts uh, Christ's anointing this way. He says, The Spirit was with God, with Christ, from womb to tomb to throne. A few examples of this. In Luke 1.35, he formed Christ in Mary. In Luke, same verse, Luke 1.35, he sanctifies Christ's body and filled it with grace. Uh, Luke 2.40 says, Christ grew in wisdom and knowledge through the Holy Spirit. Luke 4.1 says, the Spirit anointed Christ with everything he needed for his mission. Luke, or Matthew 12.28, he empowered Christ, the Spirit empowered Christ for Christ's miraculous works. Luke 4.14 says he led and upheld Christ in ministry. Hebrews 9.14 says he enabled Christ to offer himself on the cross. Acts 2.27 says he preserved Christ's body in the tomb. Romans 8.11 says he raised Christ from the dead. And 1 Corinthians 15.45 says he glorified Christ's human nature. So we see clearly that 
the Spirit was entwined in all of Jesus' earthly ministry. He was accomplishing this spiritual battle. It empowered Him to defeat sin, to die on the cross. So when, it, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, and it read, King of the Jews, that was a right fulfillment. He came as this King, this anointed King here, this Spirit-empowered King to do something only... The, the, that God himself could do, anointed with the Spirit of God, could accomplish, and that is pay for the sins of the world. That was the victory that Jesus came to win. He fought this spiritual battle and won it. But they would have read even this, and they, they, they would have read verse 2, where it says this anointed king says, He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There was this custom in the ancient world where when a king would come, a new king would come into reign, he would release the, the, the prisoners of the former king. That he would forgive the debts of the former king. It was like a year of jubilee, if you remember that from Leviticus. It was this freeing of those who were bound by the last rule. So, this year of the Lord's favor would have been this king coming and releasing them from all the things that they were imprisoned to. So they would have expected their coming king to come and release them from how they were bound. So how does he actually set his people free? How does Christ as king actually set his people free? So Christ was the anointed one. Christ is the emancipator as well. Right? So we have these explicit promises of Christ emancipating, freeing people in this passage. It says that they were slaves. When it says to proclaim liberty, liberty to the captives, that word captives there is describing a slave that is bound to someone by debt. He's supposed to get, proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The prison to those who are bound, that would have had language of freeing someone from, that's being held against their will there would have been explicit promises about those freedom, and that is referring to our spiritual captivity. That is referring to how we were captives spiritually to our sin. We are indebted under the law. We have a real spiritual captivity. Listen to as I read from Romans 6. It says this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means is that, for those of you who don't know, we were in the garden with the fruit when, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God said to them, if you eat of that free, you, tree, you will surely die. 
And when they rebelled against God and they ate of that fruit, the wages of that sin, that transgression, that crossing the line of, of God's law is death. And each time you and I follow in that pattern because of that, that sinful nature we've inherited from Adam and Eve, every time we sin, we deserve to die just like they deserve to die. To be separated from God. And there's no way you and I could pay that. We know that God's justice for that is his wrath and hell. That's an eternity away from God. That's eternity separated from God. But Jesus, dying on the cross, absorbed all of God's wrath, absorbed all of our debt towards God. Every ounce that we would, it would take us an eternity to pay, he absorbed in one moment, freeing us from our debt. In that moment. So we are free through Christ, through this anointed king. We are free from our captivity to sin. And we are the poor. We are the afflicted. No matter how good your life is. Now, maybe you're like me and sometimes you think, why, why at church do we talk so much about suffering that happens in, in our lives? I feel like my life is, is actually pretty good. But even if you would look at your own life and say, I'm very blessed and I feel like very comfortable. Um, Christ says this to the, the church in Laodicea in Revelations 3.17 that feels fairly similarly to how you might. Says this, this is what Christ says to them. He says, for you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I have need of nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich with white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We, we need to realize the spiritual reality that's happening in each and every one of our hearts. While it's not as easy to see as the physical reality of what's happening in our lives, Right? The, the spiritual sin and the spiritual enslavement is far more significant for us. That while we could have everything that the world would offer, just like this church in Laodicea that's rich and in need of nothing, we could be poor and wretched and pitiable and blind and not even know it because we don't recognize the depth of our spiritual plight. And that is the affliction that Christ lifted us out of when he died on the cross. He paid our spiritual debt and gave us good news to the poor. So, when it talks about the year of the Lord's favor, it right after that it says, the, the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you were to read Luke 4, where Jesus quotes this, you'll notice that Jesus stops actually right there when it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and doesn't go on to talk about the day of vengeance of our God. He says, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is, notice the language too, year versus day. 
right? Year is a much longer time than a day. The year of the Lord's favor is now, his time of patience towards us, that he's waiting and allowing us to receive this spiritual freedom that we've been given in Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some should count slowness, but, patient, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So you, you, know, you understand this, right? A friend of ours was asking this the other day, saying, do you, have a, do you ever feel a tension in your own life having young children? Like, don't you, you, that you want Christ to return as a believer, but at the same way, you don't want him to return quite yet because you want your children to know about Christ. And we say, yeah, we definitely feel that tension. We see all the problems in the world and we want Christ to come and save those things, but we don't want that to happen until, until they know. And you know that too. You, I'm sure, undoubtedly, this weekend or this week, we're surrounded by your unbelieving family members, and you have that ache in your own heart that that they would come to have this spiritual freedom more than their physical problems, their sufferings that they're going through right now. You're you feel pity about those things, and you wish those things would be different, but you're much, much more concerned about their spiritual plight, right? You see that as a much, much more urgent nature because that has to be resolved or else they're going to stand in eternity of God's wrath. So God, right now, through Christ, is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. When he came and entered the world and accomplished what he did through the gospel, we are now in this time where we have been given the good news to be freed from our spiritual captivity. Yet that's really hard to feel sometimes. It's still, it's really hard to feel when you, when you think, I, I know there are, there are families here who are going through extremely tough things. Loss and suffering and all of these physical sufferings in their life, and for me to just say to them, well, hey, good news is you've been freed from your spiritual plight. That is great news, isn't it? But when you feel the weight and the, 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 the effects of our sin in this world, sometimes it just, it's like, man, I just, I need more. I need, I need to be free from all the pain that I'm feeling right now. I need my physical pain to be, to be taken away. So how does Christ meet us in our suffering then? He's freed us from our captivity to sin. He's lifted us poor out of our affliction. And how does he meet us in our suffering? We see this language in Isaiah 61 where he says, in verse 3, he says, He's come to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord may be glorified, he shall, that they shall build up ancient ruins, shall raise up former devastations, shall, be repaired, shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. This language here is replacement language. It's... it's the way it's formatted in Hebrew is clearly pointing to the fact that 
those ashes that were on their forehead that show that they were mourning is now replaced with a headdress of gladness, of celebration, of life. That this oil of blessing is there instead of mourning. Something you would never have put on if you, were suffer- if, you were, if you were mourning the loss of someone you loved. That there's praise, like a garment of praise, that you have this outward reflection of this beauty, this, this, this good circumstance that you're in instead of this bro- broken and downtrodden spirit. That there's like a real transformation from your, your mourning and your sadness to this joy. That there's ancient ruins that are just laid bare that once were great and all of a sudden the time, the clock is turned back so that they are restored to their perfect and former glory. There's this restoration of the mourner. But Jesus didn't come. The, the gospel didn't, doesn't save us right now from our reasons for mourning. It didn't, it's not, there's a reason for mourning has not been removed. There's still death and there's still suffering yet. Romans 5 and James 1 give us insight as to how we can, we can view this suffering that he didn't come to remove our sufferings yet, but he did come to transform the way we mourn. This is what Romans 5, 3 through 5 says. It says, more than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And James 1, 2 through 3 says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, wrecking nothing. See, we recognize in our suffering now that God is doing something with it. He's transforming our hearts. He's making us more like Christ. He's in the process of us suffering in this world right now. For those of us who have our hope in Zion, as it says, who have placed our hope in the promises of God, we're actually being transformed in our suffering, to be more like Christ. Christ doesn't take us out of our sufferings in this world, but he transforms those who do suffer. As a loving father disciplines their child. Not only this, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope, right? John 16, in John 16, at the end of it, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, I'm going away now, and things are going to get bad for you, and you are going to suffer. But he says this at the end. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus came to transform the mourner, right? He did, he did came, come to free us from our sins and give us emancipation from our spiritual suffering, He is our anointed king winning our spiritual battles, but the reality of the gospel is that Christ does bring joy after sorrow. There is something else coming. Man, I really wrestled as I prepared this passage this week because it's hard. This is true, right? This is is all true that Christ has come to free us from our spiritual imprisonment and to give us the spiritual hope but I think of all the suffering in this world, and I, I feel this pity and this, I, I feel this tension of like, there's just not 
I just need something more to say. How can I compare what Christ has done to the analogy of all of those things that are happening in each and every one of your lives and how each and every one of us suffer? But think about this. Would you have told the Jews who read Isaiah 61 at that time, would you have said, hey, you know what? As you're reading this prophecy, just be satisfied right now. Just be glad that you're at least in God's promised people. You know? Or would you have told that to the Jews who heard it under the Romans? No, you, you wouldn't have told them that. You would have said you need something more than what you have right now. That's why the, what the prophecy is talking about. The prophecy is saying that there's going to be one who will come to free you from your spiritual captivity. And the prophe- this, promise, this prophecy isn't all fulfilled yet. Because Jesus stops at proclaiming the day of the Lord's favor. There's a day of vengeance of our God that is coming, that when we will receive physical comfort, there will be a day when there will be no more tears, when He will wipe away all the physical suffering of this world. Death will be done. Every, every effect of the fall will be healed. Jesus will even, He says He will wipe away every tear. And I, I picture that as Him going back in our lives and, and removing the pain and the hurt from all the things we experienced in every one of our tragedies and sufferings in this world. All of that will be healed. But He's being patient now. So that some can receive the Lord's favor for their spiritual plight. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, right after Paul says, if Christ doesn't raise, we are to be pitied most among all people, right? If, we, if the gospel just stops as like, hey, Jesus paid for your sins, that's it. But we have no hope of a future of being raised with him. Paul says we're, supposed to, we're pitied most among all people, but Christ did raise. He defeated death. He is reigning right now, seated on the throne of heaven, and he will return, and he will defeat all of his enemies. And it says this in 1 Corinthians 25 and 26, 15, 25 and 26. It says, For he must reign until he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Those things will be destroyed. We have a hope for Christ coming back into the world to remove all of this pain and suffering. The gospel isn't just that he removed all of our sin and freed us from our spiritual suffering. It's that someday he will remove all of our physical suffering too. But he's being patient. Because in order for him to do that, he, judges, he must judge his enemies. And there are still some who have not heard the good news to the poor. So application for today. In conclusion, I want to give a few points of application. One is that we should be free in Christ. That you can be free today from your spiritual bondage, which is more significant than any of your physical bondage. Your spiritual condition, if you're apart from Christ, is far worse than anything that could be happening physically in your life. I don't say that uncompassionately. I just say that knowing that you know, if you want to be free from all the effects of sin in your life, what good is it if you are healed from a sickness today and die in the future? You know, 
What, what good is it if you, like, I, I think about the examples of the demon-possessed people. What, what good would it be if Jesus just came and, and freed people from the demon, their demon possession, and then they went into judgment with those demons for eternity? Like, we need something more than that, right? Our eternal hope is our freedom from our sin. And here's, the, here's something crazy, too, that as we, we look back at Isaiah 61 and how God fulfilled these promises in Christ, we are given a similar commission to what we find in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us. As believers, we have been given the Spirit of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus received the Spirit, you can see what that means. We just talked about this in youth group, and I was just blown away as I'm reading Mark 1, when it says, the, sp- the, heaven, the heaven tore open, and the Spirit came down like a dove, and it says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, that God has made you not an enemy, and not a debtor, but a Son in whom He is well pleased, and has given you His Spirit, and empowered you with His favor to accomplish His mission of proclaiming good news to the poor. And proclaiming liberty to the captives. As the gospel is going out, you, Christian, have been empowered by the Spirit for the myth, to continue the mission that Christ was sent to accomplish. So, be free in Christ. Proclaim the good news to the poor and hopefully wait for Him. As we're in this Advent season, and we think about all the things that Jesus has fulfilled. All the promises that had to be fulfilled in order for him to come in the way that he did and to do what he's done. Think about how he's going to come next. How he's going to come again and free us from all the effects of sin. Let me pray. Lord, we do feel that tension in our hearts. We want to say, come Lord Jesus. We want to say, come and restore everything. Heal us from all of these horrible effects of sin, mainly death, God. We feel that pain, but God, we also ask that you would wait so that those we love, those who don't know you, would hear your good news and would be free from their spiritual captivity. God, thank you for sending your Son and for giving us your Spirit now. Christ has come into the world and the Spirit is in us now as your people, still here with us. So Lord, by your Spirit, would we be empowered to proclaim the good news to the poor and to hope expectantly. pray these things in your name. Amen.